0: hello and welcome to switzer investing i'm peter switzer thanks for joining me on tonight's show fund manager marcus bogdan of blackmore capital tells us why he's positive on these stocks helios csl and brambles and suncorp but he's negative believe it or not on cba the former head of New South Wales Treasury, Percy Allen, talks about how he times the stock market for bull, be- bull markets and bear markets and when he wants to get out, and what he's seeing in his economic crystal ball when it comes to where the market's heading. Then Yi An Cheng of Coolabar Capital explains why the experts in the money market think interest rates could rise for homeowners sooner than the Reserve Bank's 2024 call. And then Slater and Gordon's Rowan Foley explains why they want that's the lawyers they want to take a casino business star entertainment group uh, to the cleaners with a class action that's the show up ahead uh, and uh, let's kick off with marcus bogdan who i caught up with earlier in the morning in my office Well, joining me now is Marcus Bogdan, who is from Blackmore Capital, and he manages the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. We always like to see what dividend-paying stocks or potentially growth-growing stocks are in favour or out of favour with Marcus. Thanks for joining us, mate.
1: Thanks, Peter. Good to see you.
0: Okay, mate. Let's uh, talk about some companies that uh, had some interesting revelations, and Helios is one of them.
1: Yes. Well, they've had their AGM this morning. And just to to remind investors, um, Helios is the second largest pathology provider in Australia and also has diagnostic and uh, short stay hospitals. But pathology is the core business uh, and it's recording record levels. And no doubt that that has been driven by COVID testing. They're doing about 40,000 tests a day at $100 per test. But the revenue for the first quarter vis-a-vis uh, the previous uh, first quarter was up 44% and earnings were up 150, uh, 159%. So um, well supported by COVID testing, but equally important, they are starting to see recovery in their base pathology business, which is trading ahead of expectations as well. And so that's led to a a nice uplift in their share price today of around 5%. And I expect to see uh, some significant upgrades on the back of their announcement uh, earlier this morning.
0: Marcus, did you buy this for growth or did you buy this for dividends and the growth is just a nice bonus?
1: No, bought it for, it was a recovery play. We could see that the underlying business was improving. They'd simplified their corporate structure. So we saw it both uh, in terms of an earnings recovery play. It is in an essential industries, which we we like because of the stability that that generally gives to earnings and dividends. Uh, And also with the selling of their general practice business, uh, they have ungeared their balance sheet, which has allowed for. Uh, on-market buybacks and a higher uplift in dividends. So really buybacks, earnings growth and an uplift in dividends as well.
0: And does it mean they have to deal less with troublemaking doctors?
1: Uh, yes, no, pa- pathology and, and diagnostics is far more automated than gen- general That's practice yeah, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's a it's more attractive business model.
0: Yeah, I love doctors, but they're not always the easiest to to boss around. Let's go to CSL. There's
1: some news there. Yeah, so CSL earlier this week uh, had their R&D Investor Day, uh, and that highlighted that they are, uh, have got a very nice suite of products going forward in terms of new uh, disease therapies. They've got six uh, uh, new developments which will become to fr- hopefully come to fruition over the next five years. But Hal has got a very strong track record of delivering on these new projects. So if you go back five years and those projects that came to fruition five years ago, they now represent 20% of the earnings base of CSL today. And so whilst this year is modest growth because of the impact of COVID, we do expect that CSL will return to double digit earnings growth uh, over the forecast period. And that will also lead to a double digit increase in distributions or dividends over that period of time as well.
0: Yeah, but you don't buy CSL for dividends, really. You buy it for the growth.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: My my best guess is I, I wouldn't be surprised to see CSL at $330 over the course of the next 12 months. Is that too courageous a call, do you think?
1: Well, no, look, they, they, they have um, been at those sorts of levels pre, pre, previously. Uh, and I think you're going to be at a much higher level of earnings and the expect, expectation that they'll be able to maintain those earnings over the forecast period. And so I think for all of those reasons suggests that there's still, you know, uh, 10 to 15% upside on, on our base valuation.
0: Great stuff. Okay, let's go to Brambles. Now, Brambles has been a bit of a troublemaking company for lots of uh, investors because it's a good company but it doesn't always um, come on song when you want the share price to rise. What's the news coming out of Brambles?
1: You're, you know, you're absolutely right. And look, Brambles and that Chet model has been in Australia since the 1950s, uh, and they've subsequently expanded. And they're one of the largest logistics players globally now, with their biggest markets being in the US and Europe. And you're absolutely right. It has been a frustrating stock to follow over 10 or 15 years But the actual underlying business franchise is incredibly strong and incredibly stable. It supplies um, the the bulk of their business is supplying into consumer staples globally uh, and They have had recently a pullback in their share price because of a a recent trading update, which has suggested that profit growth wouldn't be as high for this year because they're reinvesting back into the business in terms of both their digital application and automation. But their first quarter result, which they released earlier this week, was actually stronger than expected. Revenue growth of 9%. Which was ahead of their guidance for full year of between five and seven percent. So the share price has come back over uh, over ten percent in recent weeks, and now I think that that now is representing re- reasonable value in a franchise which is is stable and growing over time.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the last area, and you've reduced your exposure to the, one of the best banks in the in the world, in Australia, namely CBA and you've increased your holding of Suncorp,
1: why? Well, CBA's had an incredibly strong run. It is the premium bank in Australia, and we still like it um, in terms of its its delivery on both earnings and dividends, and it has got the strongest balance sheet of, of the four retail banks. But I think the valuation is certainly up at the upper end. And we thought that it would be prudent to take a modest reduction in our weighting in CBA and put that capital into Suncorp, which we've done very well with that investment. So that's both a bank and an insurer. But by doing that, we're actually lifting the dividend yield from, you know, circa around 4% in CBA to over 5% for Suncorp. So we're just giving a a little bit of a kicker for the dividend for the the fund.
0: Great stuff, mate. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you in a few weeks' time.
1: Terrific. Thanks, Peter. Cheers.
0: Wednesday in my podcast, I interviewed Percy Allen, who is a former head of New South Wales Treasury. And Percy's become a bit of a stock market enthusiast, working out in ways in which you can time the market. And there's a longer podcast for about 30, 35 minutes. But I wanted to pull out one part of that interview, which I'm going to show to you right now, about what Percy's seeing with his economic crystal ball in terms of where the market might be going in the short term and the long term. So this is Percy Allen.
2: In the market, in many ways, is the best leading indicator of the economy because day to day it reflects the sentiments of investors, mm. and so um, it's a terrific leading indicator. But yeah. then around that, you can talk then about why is investor sentiment changing, and that comes back often to two fundamentals. Yeah. Although rationality isn't always, um, you know, uh, it doesn't always predominate. So uh,
0: irrational factors can come in too. I must admit, over my my lifetime, I've I've realised that no one can be accurate in tipping where a market's going. But I have found that if you put the consensus of very, very good market analysts together, you often do get warnings. Warnings in the past when I was young and stupid I ignored, but ones I think make me a little bit more cautious. And so if caution leads to a, a more defensive uh, spin on my portfolio, invariably I can soften the blow when, when those crashes come. But some crashes are often a bit tricky. It, it certainly is.
2: Uh, I mean, when I look at back at stock market crashes, uh, leaving aside the pandemic, which was a black swan, and it, it suddenly came, but obviously the smarties could see that once it hit Italy and Italy virtually closed down, mm. they then amongst themselves, said, why should it stay in Italy? <laughs> right. I shouldn't have hit Europe, America, Australia. And then they started exiting the market after February the 20th last year. And boy, did we have a crash. I mean, we were down 37% uh, through the whole. It wasn't as bad as the GFC when we were down about 55%. But it was a bad crash, but we bounced back quickly. But two things. Um, Uh, normally bring crashes either energy prices or interest rates and uh, we know inverse yield curves and when the short-term interest rates overtakes the long-term interest rates that's a very dangerous signal but that doesn't exist at present and the other one is energy prices which are at present taking off Mm -hmm. so that's one really to watch i think too at present Uh, the interest rate one possibly with quantitative easing being tapered we could see the long-term rate going up and that would have an effect on the market so i think it Present the market's a little nervous in that how far will quantitative easing, uh, quantitative tightening go? And the other one is how far these energy prices will go. Is that just a temporary blip? If so, we'll get over it. And Mm -hmm. they seem to be the two big things. There's lots of other things like the Chinese uh, property bust uh, that's happening. Yes, that could impact Australia more than others. Um, there's other things like the American debt ceiling will they will They usually get over that one yeah. uh, and it's within the control of the Democrats to fix that um, there's also just the risk that the COVID could come back we're learning now that we all need booster shots because the the vaccine wanes after six months and isn't that effective mm. so uh, governments need to roll out those shots again next year. And so there are always these imponderables, but I think the two big ones we're really all watching are interest rates and energy prices because
0: traditionally they've been the ones that have undercut the market. Okay, so let me share with my um, viewers and listeners um, your current view uh, from your newsletter. And you're basically saying that the short-term view looks bearish but the medium to long-term looks bullish. Is that the right interpretation? Well, it was till yesterday.
2: Uh, as I mentioned in the newsletter, it could change this week, and it has. Today, on our
0: short-to-medium-term model, the market's bullish again. It's, yeah, it's I, I was hoping you would say that because that was my <laughs> best guess as well, but I wanted you to, to agree you with tied it. this. You typed this interview
2: perfectly, but <laughs> I just checked the market before, and I thought it would happen yesterday or Friday, um, but it's happened today. Uh, effectively the 10-day moving uh, average or trend line of the market has overtaken the 30-day mm. trend line, and, and that's a really good sign. Um, um, long-term, it's it's very bullish, although it's it's showing some fatigue. The COPOC indicator uh, has flattened uh, after, uh, you know, the, the bull market since last year, since uh, March last year, uh, which suggests the market is taking a breather in, in a long-term sense. Now, whether it will then keep going up or whether it will turn the I can't tell. <laughs> but
0: yeah, but the, both are looking pretty good today. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, the, your medium to long-term was looking good. Explain to my um, uh, listeners and viewers why the long, medium long-term looks good. Yeah, look, it's a, we did a lot
2: of model testing and we came down really with two indicators, which we think basically tell the whole story. We could add a whole lot of other indicators, but they didn't add any value. One is to take the 30 day trend line, moving average of the All Ords Index. The other one is the 300 day uh, trend line. And if the 30 day trend line is above the 300 day trend line, then it's really telling us over the long term the market is bullish. It's, it's um, running ahead of itself. Yeah. On the other hand, if the 30 day trend line falls below the 300 day trend line, as happened last year during the crash, and happened then during the GFC, but it is a this is a slow-moving model compared with the shorter-term model, then you you know you're in a bear market yeah. uh, and you have to wait for that 30-day trend line to again move up above the 300-day one. At the same time, we look at the COPOC indicator. The COPOC is remarkably accurate in Australia's case. It's almost at 100% accuracy. I think it's at 100% accuracy. In other markets, about 70%. But when the COPOC indicator... Um, bottoms, so it gets into negative territory and then starts turning up, that the point where it starts turning up, you pretty well know that the bear market is over. Mm. And, and that so, happened uh, pretty early
0: last year after the crash. So so how long before you get good signals with COPOC? Like, for example, at the moment, COPOC... Has been rising because we were yeah. in the poor market. I think it has leveled off a little bit, hasn't it, in recent times? Yeah. Uh, the COPOC, we've got to be a little careful
2: with. It's it's really only a signal for the end of a bear market when it bottoms in negative territory. The experts in this say, look, where it tops can be unreliable because it can have a top and then go down a bit and, get and keep going up.
0: Well, we're going to ask that question. Yeah.
2: And that's happened often. But when it gets negative and, and bottoms, it's very rare that it doesn't keep going up again. Uh, So it's a very reliable signal uh, for the end of a bear market. It's not that reliable a signal for the end of a bull market, although when it starts flattening out, as it's doing now, it may signal the end of a bull market, but it may also just signal the the bull
0: market's having a breather Mm. before it uh, takes off again. Yeah, so therefore, the the fact that I use my gut feeling and history to buy a whole lot of stocks at the bottom of this most recent collapse of the market. I, I should just go to your COPOC. That, that would have actually confirmed that I was right. I could have doubled my purchases. Well, yeah. the COPOC, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't um, bottom
2: exactly at the bottom of the index, right? I think it bottomed in about, I'd have to check the data, but it was either May or July or something like that, May, June. There's there's three, four months delay. But but still, if one had bought in at that point, you're right. One was buying in and a depressed market. You wouldn't Mm. have been buying in at the very bottom of the market because it's a trend-following system. And with any trend system, there's a lag.
0: Okay. Now, you know, I always try and marry the stuff that you do with my economic assessments as well. And I interviewed Bill Evans last week. Uh, I'm sure you've uh, come across him in your time. And Bill thinks oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Bill, Bill thinks the Australian economy is going to grow by 7% next year. That's a huge number, isn't it?
2: 7%. Yes, he's very bullish. Yeah. So, uh, well, I think 7% next year, Peter. I think he's got zero for this year, which no one else has. Yeah. And I think when I last looked, and he had about 7% for next year, so it's a massive turnaround, but more than any other economist out there. But he could be right. I mean, it depends what happens in the December quarter, whether we still get pretty flat growth or negative
0: growth. Yeah. So so I guess my, my discussion point is this, that if we have an economy growing at 7%, would you then think that that would factor into pretty good Australian profit, company profitability and therefore be a nice base for share prices to keep rising over 2022?
2: Well, one would think so. Um, We've had a pretty
0: rough journey last
2: year, and then we thought we were out of it and suddenly Delta arrived and uh, that dreadful strain of COVID. And we're back in lockdown um, and things really got worse. And so we've been sort of through three waves of this uh, COVID and hopefully the worst is over. And so, the positive things for the market is that um, there is some slowdown in world growth, I think, happening. And as a result, central banks may not um, put the, uh, may not start quantitatively tightening as fast as we thought. And interest rates may stay reasonably low. Uh, I think we're in a bit of a fragile period. So, interest rates may stay low. If at the same time, the economy does recover, and if Bill's right, and we have such a strong recovery, even if it doesn't happen in, in other countries, or like the OECD is not as optimistic, then yes, the outlook uh, for companies and others should be very good. I mean, we're coming out of a bleak period, two years of a bleak period, people are getting back to work, um, and the economy is regenerating, so it, it should be a good year by all accounts. It's not to say there aren't problems, but I can't believe we're going to have another uh, bleak year (laughs) because the pandemic's out of the way and it would have to be something else, like a a sudden jump in interest rates because central banks put the brake on on their quantitative easing in a big way, not in a soft way, or suddenly energy prices, instead of subsiding, kept continuing.
0: Yeah. Well, last week when Bill finished off, I reminded him that, He was a board member with the AJC, and I asked him for a tip from the Everest, and he came up with Nature Strip, which actually won. So I'm not not, not going to locate you to the uh, racing industry, but what what is your investment best idea for 2022? Oh, dear Peter, Um, I've got to be careful. I don't have
2: an investor's uh, advisor's licence (laughs) anymore, I can't really enter into that. Um,
0: Just no, say I, you, I, you, I know you You you'd often play the market via e- ETFs, don't you? That's one of, one of the strategies that you use. Look, um, I'm not terrific at guessing the market.
2: I, what I can do is tell you where the trend is going and so forth, and I can talk about the economic parameters. Um, and usually the trends your friend until it bends, as they say. And at present, the trend is pretty friendly with stock markets. I suppose that when I look at my own investments, I ask myself going forward what's likely to happen. I, I think the American market is dreadfully overvalued on fundamentals. On the other hand, if we're in a very low interest rate scenario, the American market's very cheap. It's, it's called the beer ratio, the, uh, the bond to equity return uh, ratio and um, equity returns are still much better than bonds. And so on that basis, it's one of the cheapest markets that we've had in history. On the other hand, if you look at the Shiller ratio, which is a kind of variation on the price earnings, it's dreadfully overvalued, the most overvalued market in the world. On the other hand, other markets outside America are a little overvalued, but they're not greatly overvalued because they're not as much into high tech. Uh, A lot depends on high tech. But I think at some point there will be a rotation from value to growth. I mean, historically, value now it looks very cheap. You have mm-hmm. to go back decades, and growth looks very expensive. So, point some point, and I so I, yes, I, I keep buying value shares, and it started looking good last year. Now growth is suddenly back. So, uh, I but I still have some faith in value. I once chaired a value manager, and the value was always. Uh, the winner until the last 10 years. Growth has been the winner. I suppose the other one is, I think, a rotation perhaps out of America to other markets like our own and emerging countries and so forth. Now, sure, if the future is all about high tech, then maybe America will continue to dominate. But I think what's happening is all industries are now becoming high-tech. They're having to be. And I think the Australian, Australia, Europe, and others are catching up. Their high-tech is going into what are value industries, if you like. They're almost becoming more growth industries. And so at some point, a rotation out of that dreadfully overvalued American market, which keeps going
0: Uh,
2: (laughs) up, particularly the NASDAQ, into um, other countries and their stocks, as they take the technology on board, I think that's also due. So there'd be two themes, uh, from uh, growth to value and from America to other markets. Percy Allen, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, yeah. Peter. Always fun.
0: <laughs> We're being joined by Ying, Yi and Chang from Kulava Capital. We're going to talk about What's going on with interest rates? And if you take the uh, indications from the Reserve Bank in its latest, uh, minutes, you have to say not very much at all. Ying, yeah, great to see you.
3: Great to see you, Peter. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, look, I mean, if anything, the market is clearly sort of ignoring Um, what is a very, you know, cautious RBA, um, given their rhetoric um, around, you know, global trend towards withdrawing policy support. Um, So, you know, the RBA's view is that the cash rate is likely to remain on hold until 2024, given an expected slow recovery in wage growth and inflation. Now, the, the RBA does definitely sound very adamant compared to its global peers, whether it's in New Zealand, England, or even the Fed for that matter. Um, you know, who, who is likely to raise rates next year. And obviously we've already started seeing, you know, um, hawkish moves from New Zealand and England already. But the RBA seems to be quite adamant that they probably want to be the last central bank, at least of the, most of those developed economies, to, to make a move. Our view is that the RBA will likely hike rates in 2023. Um, for now, uh, from a domestic point of view, there's no sort of signs are of inflationary pressure uh, compared to, say, our offshore sort of peers. So, yeah, it gives us some, some, you know, food for thought there.
0: Yeah. Yes, uh, Ying Yi, I interviewed uh, Bill Evans from Westpac uh, last week. And Bill quite surprised me by saying that he thought that 2022 is going to have a a 7% growth, uh, which is big, which is very big. And given the fact that you, you kind of think the first half of 2022 is going to be slower than 7%, the second half, to me, says it's going to be really, really fast growth, which means that the 2023 call on interest rates by you guys seems far more believable than
3: 2024. Yeah, that's, that's definitely sort of the case. I mean, look, I, I think... The RBA themselves are are quite optimistic about economic recovery, and that's because, you know, we have New South Wales reopening, we have Victoria reopening as well. So there's a lot of pent-up demand that will likely sort of take place, and obviously, you know, that that will be very, very good for consumer spending um, and, you know, um, how, yeah, consumer spending and also businesses as well, you know, not having the, the issue of knowing, oh, OK, when we get another lockdown, like when will we get another lockdown? So I, I think that would be good from um, a business sort of uh, borrowing uh, sort of perspective and broadly economic activity. Um, however, the the RBA is laser focused on wages and inflation, as we've spoken about Um, many a times and that as an indicator still remains subdued and our core view is that once borders do reopen as well um, that influx of skilled migration that the you know at a federal level that uh, Scott Morrison and Josh Fryenberg are very concentrated on um, and also uh, the New South Wales Premier Dominique Perrottet very focused on bringing in that skilled migration that will have the effect of putting downward pressure on wages. So that will work, you know, against the the view, um, at least in terms of pushing the RBA towards rate hikes.
0: Do you think, Bip, down the RBA, if, if it can see house prices slowing down, they'll rise next year, but I presume at a slower rate, that they would like to keep interest rates as low as possible. To even keep the dollar low, because a low dollar is very good for economic growth?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, yeah, there are definitely key advantages in having a lower Aussie dollar and keeping long end breaks low. I mean, that was the whole point of them really trying to use or go down the QE avenue uh, to make um, our, you know, exporters more competitive. Uh, however, with respect to sort of housing, look, I, I think what would actually be good um, and is likely to eventuate is that the banks will likely to out-of-cycle rate hikes. So that will put some dampening pressure, firstly, on, uh, on the housing market, which as we know has been strong, but that pace of growth in itself has probably slowed down a bit since March this year. Um, however, you know, the, the banks themselves, and this is more of a technical thing that we've we've actually been trading, Um, at Coolabar as well is uh, simply that the banks, um, from what we know, have to issue quite a lot of debt um, going forward. Uh, So typically in the last sort of 10 years before uh, March 2020, they would typically issue around $140 billion worth of debt. Uh, to maintain their maturity profile as part of their issuance program. We actually think that number is going to be closer to about $170 to $190 billion a year. Now, the banks themselves have been very lucky because they've been able to enjoy very cheap money by borrowing off the RPA, by the term funding facility. That facility is now... Over, um, as we know, uh, the RBA decided not to extend that. And then at the same time, we also have a separate dynamic that um, has been a theme of uh, the Kouliba portfolios, is that APRA has also recently announced that the CLF, which is a committed liquidity facility, will now be shut down by the end of next year. That committed liquidity facility has, in a nutshell, allowed the banks to hold alternative liquid assets as, an, as a form of emergency liquidity as an alternative to government bonds. Now, inside this facility, the banks have been able to hold their internal loans. They've also been able to hold each other's bonds. So this bank senior bond. Because this facility has been closed, banks themselves will no longer be the largest buyer of each other's bond anymore. So the cost of borrowing for the banks, therefore, since there is no sort of, you know, regulatory arbitrage sort of a need to hold this, the banks will need to be forced to pay a higher rate of funding. And that higher rate of funding, guess what, finds itself towards the end borrower at the end of the day. So mortgage rates you know, uh, we, we would expect uh, the banks as a result to be doing out of cycle rate hikes because their own cost of funding is going to be reflected. Okay. So, in that.
0: so the, the big story is you know, just in case people weren't smart enough to understand the highbrow explanation, a brilliant, albeit br- brilliant explanation is, and you, you gave us the clue earlier out of cycle interest rate rises. So even though you might say, okay, the RBA might not raise until late 2023 or 2024, to the normal borrower, it might not matter because the banks might raise interest rates at the end of 2022 or 2023. That's right. They could raise rates, yeah, price.
3: next year, early next year, for example. And then the other thing to also consider is that APRA um, has been, you know, looking at the housing market and they're quite concerned about the serviceability of all of these loans. So in the past, we know that um, APRA engaged in macroprudential policy uh, to put a halt on the housing market. And they were most concerned last time uh, with you know, investor loans. This time, it's not so much the investor loans that they're concerned about. It's more broadly speaking, the serviceability mm. of these mortgages given that we are at historically very low rates, as those rates move higher, um, you know, are these serviceable as a result? So uh, we'd expect that sort of macro proof to also, again, um, have the effect of dampening the housing market.
1: Okay.
0: Well, I think you've given us enough scary food for thought. If
3: <laughs> Not to <through> be <being> scary.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the thing is, just, I think a lot of people have presumed that the banks would only raise interest rates if the Reserve Bank did. But the point you made is, no, no, they might have to raise before the Reserve Bank.
3: That's right. That's right.
0: Very scary, but very interesting. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Xinyi.
3: Thank you, Peter.
0: When well, recent times Star Entertainment uh, Group got themselves in a bit of trouble and the stock price fell. Um, to talk about that instance of um, troubles for Star, we have a lawyer from Slater & Gordon, Rowan Foley. Rowan, thanks for coming on the program.
4: No problem. Thanks for having us, Peter.
0: All right. So why don't you tell us why Slater & Gordon is interested in the uh, trials and tribulations of poor old Star?
4: Sure. I mean, I don't think we would call it poor old Star, uh, but uh, I'm being
0: generous, uh Rob.
4: Certainly, we're um, we're currently investigating a class action against Star uh, uh, in relation to the matters that were disclosed recently uh, through 60 Minutes and Fairfax newspapers. Um, obviously, many of your viewers will be aware, um, either proofly or personally, personably, that the share price dropped about 20 odd percent in response to that information. Uh, we haven't issued a proceeding yet, but we're we're certainly investigating um, whether those shareholders may have claims against the company for failing to disclose uh, material information uh, dating back some years. Uh, and further that, that there may be uh, misleading statements made by STAR throughout uh, many of its ASX announcements dating back again a number of years.
0: Okay, so what what does an investigation entail for you guys?
4: Sure. So um, a lot of work, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word, we um, we look sort of quite closely at the uh, announcements made by the company um, and the factual circumstances surrounding those announcements and, and any information that, that may have been known by the company. So a wide range of um, exterior resources um, and, and we do that over you know, some weeks to determine whether we have a proper basis to issue a proceeding against the company on behalf of shareholders.
0: Hmm. Has there been any evidence of a regulatory body being interested in the behaviour of STAR until recently? Uh,
4: So certainly I think STAR is the subject of uh, a number of ongoing reviews um, as part of its licensing arrangements. Um, They happen independently, uh, internally, and also um, through the regulator, uh, the casino regulator and and Austrack. AUSTRAC uh, announced, or, or rather did a media release, that they were looking into STAR some months ago, um, and STAR uh, did announce that to the ASX. Um, what it didn't announce was, was uh, we we will likely say, um, the, the underlying metrics of the material which the review was likely to find. So a lot of that was aired through the media reports recently.
0: Mm. So ultimately, before you proceed, do you have to get a substantial number of shareholders saying to you, yes, we're interested in joining the action?
4: Um, so these days we don't sort of require in the same way that perhaps we used to at a certain sign-up. Um, we, we undertake our own analysis of what we think the likely uh, number of in, affected individuals will be. Um, and then we pr- proceed on that basis. Currently, we're encouraging people to get in touch with us and register their interest, um, which is just a helpful way for, for people to stay informed about the progress of the claim. Those people will be notified um, even when a claim is issued um, and, and any steps from there. Um, there's a number of ways to participate, um, whether you do that through registering with the claim when it's proceeded or through a court ordered number, but um, it, it's not so much a case of us needing to, you know, have a certain amount of people get in contact with us. No, we're likely to to proceed based on the the strength of the claim.
0: Okay. So I I presume then, let's imagine that you and your team go through reams and reams of reports and, and whatever, and in the end, you identify at least five or six areas where the company has clearly misled the market. So if, if, for example, no one's contacted you for support, would you still go ahead with it anyway?
4: Um, I, I, we need to, sorry, we need to, um, the, the structure of these claims involves at least one person signing okay. on as what we call the representative applicant. Um, they represent the entire group. And, and we take specific instructions from them. Um, I can't think of an instance that not a single other person has been in touch. Usually, you know, in those cases, there's thousands and thousands of people affected, and, um, and they're not shy to come forward and express that. And um, we've certainly had people be in contact with us already.
0: Yeah, I would presume so. But, but it seemed to me that the strength of the support for the class action would come when, once you reveal... X number of reasons why this looks like a case that could be won.
4: Is that true? Certainly. So um, there's a few different, I guess, waves of of sign-up and support that we might get during these um, processes. Initially, there's there's often a response from um, people just uh, immediately aggrieved at at Mm -hmm. having, you know, a significant portion of their self-managed super fund or portfolio um, wiped out. Um, and that's that happens often very quickly, and we will uh, we will keep those people in what we call a registration of interest, and then they're updated. Um, following that, often these are result in filed proceedings, and then we'll get another wave um, or, or, or sort of body of interest of, of um, shareholders, both institutional and retail, that, that are interested in signing up.
0: Okay. Um, for someone to benefit from any compensation that comes out of their class action. Do they have to be registered to be a part of the class action? Or are all shareholders entitled to some kind of compensation if you guys win?
4: So it's an interesting question and it's a sort of nuanced answer. Um, It will will be determined at some point what the, the precise group member definition is. So it might be persons that Purchase shares throughout a specified period, um, and typically it's someone who had a net increase in shares inside at some point at some point during that period.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so certainly, if they meet whatever that final group member definition is, those group members will likely be entitled to compensation through the um, through the class action. Um, the courts. Are changing the various times, the specific ways people can register for these things. There's there's typically more than one way. Um, you can often sign a legal costs agreement with the law firm um, and/or a litigation funding agreement if there's a funder involved. And at that point, you'll sort of be be on for the ride for the whole way and, and they'll register you at the registration time. Um then there's often later, quite a bit later, some, some 18 months, often um, a, a court ordered registration period in which people will have to come forward um, to register to receive any settlement outcome. We okay. encourage people to register early because those notification processes are never perfect. Um, often, you know, someone might not have their updated address on their uh, linked or computer share account um, and, and people do occasionally miss out during that later period. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a number of ways, but people do have to register at some point. Yes.
0: Okay. Um, now, I don't want to be portrayed as a tight one, but I'm sure people watching the program, some of them might be. Does it cost them to be a part of the class action?
4: nothing out of pocket. So you're never going to be worse off uh, from a Slater and Gordon class action. Um, We haven't finalised the particular way this one will be funded, uh, if it does proceed, but typically, um, uh, as is commonly the case these days, we'll seek what's called a group costs order, which is a percentage uh, approved by the court um, and and finally determined at the end of the proceeding. And that percentage cut, uh, whether it's sort of 20%, 25%, generally will Sorry, always comes out of the compensation received through a judgment or a settlement. So, if, for instance, if someone's awarded a thousand dollars in damages, that they will pay us two hundred and fifty dollars out of that amount if it's a twenty-five percent um, uh, group costs order, and that that will be that will be extracted from their settlement amount before they receive their money. So it's it's um, it's that it's never an out-of-pocket expense.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I think it's pretty pretty well clear that if someone really is aggrieved. Uh, about what's happened to the share price and they believe management and the board has um,
4: misreported
0: over time and, and behaved badly that it seems logical that they should uh, register if they're not going to be out of pocket.
4: Absolutely. I mean, I say that to all my friends and family when they get in touch, when they get a notification at some point, what do I do? I just say, register, you're never going to be worse off.
0: Of course, it's not advice, is it, uh, Ryan? It's just good general education.
4: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, um, I haven't been part of one, but I would register if, if, if another firm was doing it it, it. it makes sense.
0: Well, thanks for joining us on the program and um, we watch with interest uh, how you guys proceed with this.
4: Thanks very much, Peter.
0: And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Remember, if you want to know more about us, you can go to switzer.com.au and if you want more help in investing in the stock market, have a look at our Switzer report. It's switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you on Monday night.